thank you that we do believe. Thank you that our trust and our faith is completely anchored in you. We thank you that our lives are built on an immovable foundation. You are the rock that our lives are built on. And even though things get shaky around us, even though the winds and the storms come of life and we pass through things that we never thought we would go through, we thank you even amidst all of the variances of life. Our lives are immovably placed in you. We want to thank you for that, Jesus. Whilst times change, our faith in you remains, and you are the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. So we thank you today, Jesus. We thank you for one another. We thank you that we come into this place seeing one another after such a a long time, a difficult period. But through it all, we come with joy in our hearts, Lord, to celebrate and give thanks to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, do you know, I wanted to really begin this morning by just reminding you of some things that I've been talking about over the last past weeks. We've been looking at a series, if you've been watching online, uh, a series called Faith for a Great Future. Do you believe that God has got a great future for you? You listen to the news sometimes and you read the newspaper and you get bombarded by all of these different voices, and sometimes, you know, it's in, in light of everything that happens and in light of the picture that's painted and set before us, it's hard to imagine that we have a great future if that's the only input that you get. But, you know, God has a great future for every single one of us. And sometimes even the things that we go through can actually contradict and we can almost have evidence that we can put on the table that contradicts this great future and this great plan that God has for us. But you know, you read his word, you, you, you follow him, and it's plain to see God has a great future for you and I, irrespective of how we feel irrespective of the circumstances around us, God has a great future. And Faye's already referred to it this morning, that wonderful verse from Jeremiah chapter 20, 29. I know the plans, God says, that I have for you. You've been created for a great purpose. You've been created to, to, for, for the life of God to break out of you every single moment of every single day. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, you know it well. He said, I have come that you might have life 
and life more abundantly. He stood toe-to-toe with the enemy and, and he actually unmasked Satan. He said, there is one who has come to steal, kill, and destroy your life, but I am, I am completely opposite in my work in your life to him. I have come not to steal, not to kill, not to destroy. I have come that you might have life. And that word life is, is uh, the word zoe, the very life of God. The very life of God. You know, the enemy can't touch your salvation. It is eternally secure. It is ratified in the blood of Jesus. His work was finished on the cross. And the moment you and I believed and confessed him to be Lord and Savior of our lives, our salvation was eternally secure. The devil cannot touch your salvation. He cannot touch it. In, in, in this life or in the next. It's eternally secure through what Jesus has done. But I'll tell you what the enemy tries to do. He tries to spoil our enjoyment of the salvation that God has given us. He tries to hinder us. He tries to hold us back. He tries to stop this salvation experience, as wonderful as it is, breaking out of our lives and us and us enjoying the fullness of, of its blessing. And very often, you know, the enemy disguises himself in many different ways to hinder us and cause us to live impoverished lives when really we're the richest people in all the world. We really are. Because Peter says we've been given exceedingly great and precious promises that we might become partakers of the divine nature. I mean, is that just written for for us to read and, and know more for it to remain on the page? Or is that to actually be lifted off the page, implanted into our hearts by the Spirit of God so that it might enrich our lives? I believe that... You know, we should be the happiest people in the whole world. If we really are the inheritors of such a great salvation, we should really be living in this fullness of life. But very often the enemy comes disguised and he tries to hinder us. He tries to stop this great future that God has for us unfolding. And he tries to keep us really under circumstance and just with a get-by attitude. No, no, we've got to stand up to that with the Word of God. We've got to stand up to that with the life of God and the life of the Spirit within us. Now, as by way of introduction this morning, I want to just recap over some of the things that I've been talking about over the last past few weeks because I really do feel that they are important to us before we get into what I'm going to talk about in Romans chapter 8. But over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this whole, this, this whole revelation of God's Word in our lives and how it unfolds and how we have to give it priority. Paul said this in Colossians to a church that was struggling. His advice to them in their circumstances, in their struggle was this, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. That'll sort out all your struggles. That'll sort out your crises. That'll sort out your circumstance. It'll put your life into perspective. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. 
I tell you, God wants to be, God wants you to be the richest person on this planet. And that's why he wants his word to dwell within you richly. He wants you to prosper. And the way you can prosper, the way your life can be fruitful, the way your life can explode and take off is having the word of God dwelling you in such a rich way that your life becomes the very expression of God's life. I tell you, this is no motivational speech. This is, this is in line with what God wants for us as his people. And this is what we've been looking at. But a number of weeks ago, I, um, I started by asking us a question. You might, be, you might remember it. And the question was this. It's a very simple one, but an important one. It was this. Who is the one person in your life that speaks to you more than anybody else? Who's the one person? And this is important for us older people as it is for us younger people. This is a question that is so important for life. This is a question that we often have to ask ourselves as we journey through this life. Who is the one person in your life that speaks to you more than anybody else? There's lots of answers, but when you think of it, and when you boil it down, the answer to the question is simple. The one person that speaks to you more than anybody else is you. That's who it is. It's you. You're the one person that speaks to you more than anybody else. You're in a constant conversation with yourself on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And therefore, if you are, let me, let, me, let me put this to you. If you are the one person that speaks to you more than anybody else, shouldn't you and I be evaluating the content of the conversation that we have with ourselves on a continual basis? Very often, we converse with ourselves throughout the day and we just get into a habit of, of not checking that content. And sometimes what can happen is you can get into a very negative conversation with yourself. It goes unchecked and slowly you see your life beginning to spiral down. Slowly you begin to see your emotions being affected and you becoming downcast in your soul. You know, I've had to reevaluate this, this whole area of my life. I'm just being honest with you. Over the last past months, and as I've examined it, I've seen that some of the conversations that I have had with myself have not been good ones. So what have you got to do? You've got to bring that thing into order. You've got to correct it. You've got to adjust it. You've got to bring God's word in and be strong with yourself. You know, the wonderful thing about the word of God is it's like a sword. It's like a sword and it'll deal with that negative voice. It'll deal with that conversation. It'll correct it and it'll put it into line. You know, when I was, I was thinking about this and I used this illustration a few, few uh, weeks ago just to just to give us some idea of what goes on and how to address the issues that are happening within us. I don't know if you remember, but that, uh, a man by the name of John Burkow, Burkow was um, the leader of the House of Commons. And he would rarely say anything 
and he was the leader of the House of Commons for nine or ten years. And the main players in the House of Commons were the two opposing prime ministers, or prime minister and, and the, the opposing party's uh, prime minister. And they would, you know, jostle back and forth, and you'd hear all of this noise in the House of Commons, and then John Burke would stand up, man. He would smack his hammer on his desk, and he would say one word, order, like that. Just one word. Sometimes he'd have to say it again, but by the second time, everything would be quiet. Everything would be still. And you know, sometimes we've just got to be like John Burku and stand up on the inside of ourselves and stop listening to ourselves and speak to ourselves. Bang our hammer down on the desk of our heart and say, order. When fear stands up and starts to speak to you, when unbelief and doubt stands up and starts to speak, speak to you, when, when depressive thoughts, you could name, you know, there's, there's a million and one things that might want to take the conversation of your heart in a particular direction. You've just got to stand up like John Burku, bang your hammer down on the desk and say, order, this is what the word of God says. This is what the promises of God's word declares over my life. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to be hindered by that. I'm not going to come under the, the rule and the power of that because God's word in me says something different. Address it. Now we looked at Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is an incredible psalm because David's having a conversation with himself. 11 verses long, 10 of the verses are really negative. There's over 40 personal negative pronouns that David makes in reference to his life. He's having a really bad day. You can read it, and over 10 Psalms, he's just beating himself up. He's, the imagery that he's using, the picture that he's making is of a languishing deer parched, thirsty, on the run, being hunted. But God didn't give him that picture about his life. This was the spiral that David had plummeted into. Why? Because he didn't address the conversation that he was having with himself, and it was getting the better of him. And David just recounts over 10 verses all of the reasons why he can't go on. He looks at God and feels abandoned and talks about it. He looks at man and feels oppressed and talks about it. And then he just talks about the ever-pressing problems and trials that he is facing. It's a dire conversation, a dire situation. And this isn't a rant at David this morning. I'm glad at the openness and the transparency because I can look at David in Psalm 42, and I can see David Edwards there. So it's really helpful. Psalm 42 is really helpful to me. But you see, Psalm 42 begins in despair, but it ends in hope. It ends in hope. And how, that, how it ends in hope is, is with David's correction of this voice in his life. Verse 11, he says this, and this is where everything changed. 
for David. Everything changed for David. In this one last verse, he speaks to himself. Psalm 42 verse 11, he says this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. See, he's bringing adjustment now to all of this, this storm and all of this turmoil and all of this waging war within him that's trying to pull him in every direction. He brings order to himself. Order, he cries. Enough, he says. After all of his reasons, after all of his reminiscing over why things aren't going, enough. Hoping God, David. Hoping God. And then he says this, look what hope can do. As you begin to fix your eyes on God, as you begin to fix your heart and your attitude again on God, look what it can do. For I shall yet praise him. My, my, my future, my days are not going to resemble my past. There's not going to be mourning in my voice. There's not going to be a morbidity about my attitude anymore. I shall yet praise him. And sometimes when we take stock of our lives and we say, do you know what, man? I'm plummeting down here. This is not good. We begin to restore our hope in God. And then praise begins to revive in our hearts. I shall yet praise him. That's what my future is about. Not being abandoned by God. Not, not being like a, a parched deer, always thirsty and looking for the next bit of relief. No. I'm going to hope in God. My mouth is going to be filled with praise. That's what my, my future is about. And then he says this, you're the help of my countenance and my God. Other translation says, you're the help of my countenance, the health of my countenance, the strength of my countenance. I tell you, your face changes. Your face lights up when there's hope in your heart. When praise is spontaneously coming from your life. And this is the heritage of God's people. Yes, we have problems. Yes, we have trials. Yes, we have lots of difficulties. Yes, there's painful circumstances that surprise us and, and really sometimes, you know, trip us up. But you know what? It can never remove the hope in our heart. It can never take the praise from our lips. And as a result of that, God is the glory of our countenance. And that's how David finishes that psalm. Why? Because he speaks to himself instead of listens to himself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I, I quoted this. It's a fantastic statement. And this is how the Lord healed me many years ago of some complaints in my, in my body. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, have you realized yet that most of, most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you listen to yourself more than you speak to yourself? Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you listen to yourself more than you speak to yourself. Begin to speak to yourself. If that conversation within you is negative, if you're worried about your future, if you're finding, you know, 
the shop front looks good to everybody else out there. You know, you're confident to everybody else out there. You're happy, but you know what? The, the smile is plastic because when you look in the mirror, you can see that your eyes are hollow and your heart is empty. If that's the case, if that's the case, there's an answer for us. Listen, I'm telling you the truth. That's been the case many times in my life. So don't feel on your own. I've had that. I've walked that. But you know, when we deal with this conversation and when we speak to ourselves instead of just listening to ourselves, the power of God goes into operation because we believe his word and his word becomes real and living and incarnate in our experience and day-to-day life. So we looked at Psalm 42 and then the latter part of last week's message, we looked at Romans chapter 7. Now Romans chapter 7 is again much like Psalm 42 because it's full of negative personal pronouns. Paul is referencing himself and he's using all of these negative personal pronouns about his life. The pronouns of I, me, and my. He's completely immersed in himself, just like David was. And if you read Romans chapter 7, you hear that, this conversation that Paul is having. Everything in Romans chapter 7 is falling apart. He's having a really bad day. He's being really hard on himself. And he is downcast, disquieted, much like David was in Psalm 42. He's distressed. He's defeated. You know, Paul was a brilliant man, an educated man, a scholar. He was versed in languages. He, he, he was an experienced citizen in Rome. He, not only that, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an elite man. He was at the top. But in Romans chapter 7, he's defeated. He's come to the end of himself. And he's having a conversation with himself. And this conversation, you can read it, is full of self-effort. It's full of struggle, self-strength. He's being very introspective. And he's examining, he's examining his life through the law outside of Christ. What a nightmare. He's making an inspection of his moral standing before God through the laws of God outside of Christ's provision. And it is chaos because he comes to, he comes to the conclusion that he is completely wretched. And that's what the law is designed to do, to show us that we are wretched. We are sinners outside of the provision of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7 verse 24 as he examines his life under the law of God outside of Christ. This is his confession. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is a Pharisee of Pharisees. This is a man that was taught by the finest theologians. This is a man that knew the, the, the first five books 
of the Bible and could recite them. A brilliant man, but in Romans chapter 7, as he examines his life outside of Christ, under the law, he comes to the conclusion, oh wretched man that I am. And he says, who? He sends out a question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He couldn't separate himself from his sinful flesh. And the law just simply revived it. And the law just simply brought attention to it. And then suddenly, he sees his deliverer. He sees his savior. For in asking that question, he gets a wonderful revelation of God's saving grace through Christ Jesus. Romans 7 verse 25, and this is the last verse of chapter 7. He says this, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. After seeing Jesus, his deliverer, after seeing the saving work of God in his life, wonderful transformation takes place in Paul's life. Because you move from Romans 7 and you jump into Romans chapter 8 and commenters don't believe that there was any, any separation between these words. And as you begin into Romans chapter 8, what you see is a wonderful transformation and a confession where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious, glorious transformation. One that wouldn't be possible through the law, only possible through the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of Romans chapter 7, Paul is a condemned man. At the opening chapter, chapter 8, Romans 8, he's no longer condemned. He's being led by the Holy Spirit. And when you read chapter 8, Paul is no longer having this negative conversation with himself. There's no more negative pronouns referring to his life. The spotlight's off him. And the spotlight is on the new life that God's given him as he's being led now by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, Paul isn't having a conversation with himself. Paul is declaring all of the new creation realities of the life that he's been given in God. No more self-strength. No more effort. No more self-reliance. Paul now is living this spirit-led life. Romans chapter 7, let's make some contrasts for a moment. Romans chapter 7, nothing is working, right? And this conversation within him is making sure that he understands that nothing is happening. Listen to what he says, verses 19 and 20. For the good that I will to do. So his intentions were good. The motives of his heart were good. For the good that I will to do, I do not. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, 
It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Talk about being confused. Talk about being in turmoil. Talk about an end-ending conversation that's making you feel guilty and downcast and disquieted and an absolute failure. Here it is. But look at the transformation. And I'm telling you, you're a child of God. This miracle has happened in you. This miracle has happened in me. It really is. You're a believer. You're not in this turmoil. This is who we are in Christ. Romans chapter 8. Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't focus now on the, on the, the good that he's trying to do. He just, he just says in Romans chapter 28, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. He's no longer in strife. He's no longer under the critical examination of the law. Now he's free in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 7 verse 14. Paul is completely defeated. That's his state. Feeling downcast. He says this, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Well done, Paul, for being honest. Well done, Paul, for recognizing who you are under the examination of the law. Really important place to be at, to acknowledge that you're wretched, to acknowledge that you're carnal. It's not nice but actually outside of Christ, we are. And he acknowledges that. I am carnal, sold under sin. For, I, uh, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Oh man. Talk about being under pressure. Talk about being under the control of the law. Failing on every front. But then in Romans 8, wonderful transformation in his mind, wonderful transformation in his heart, wonderful transformation in the workings of his inner man. He says this, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Romans 7, he's being conquered by sin, by the flesh, and he's defeated in Romans 8. He declares now this new life in Christ working through him. He's no longer condemned and he is more than a conqueror. He's not being conquered. He's being led by the Spirit of God, being helped and aided by the Spirit of God. And on a later occasion, this revelation in Paul would unfold in this way. It is God who works in you. It is God in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You see, this is the most glorious life. This life of Jesus inside us. This is the most glorious, glorious privilege that we have been given to have the Holy Spirit live in us and to have Jesus seated in our hearts and to know him and to be in connection with him. It's the most glorious privilege. And now I'm telling you, it, brings, it, brings, it does not bring gl glory to God if we're disquieted. It doesn't bring glory to God for us to live in Romans 7. Am I doing this right? Am I doing that right? I, I, I've done wrong. No, it doesn't bring any glory to God for us in, when, when we're depressed, 
when, we, when we're disquieted, when, we, when we're sad. No, it brings glory to God when the joy of the Lord is breaking out of you, when your countenance is healthy. And I'm not saying that to you, I'm saying that to me. I'm saying that to me. And I've been saying that to me over the last past while. It brings glory to God when we're enjoying our salvation, when we're happy in God. We don't have to go shouting it to everybody, but there's an, that we're well inside. And do you know when we're not well inside? Do you know what? Jesus, Jesus, his heart is heavy because he loves us so much. He really does. And he wants to help us. Romans 7, I'm going to ask the musicians to come. In Romans chapter 7, Paul discovers that the law is against him. But in Romans chapter 8, he discovers that the law of the spirit of life has set him free from the law of sin and death. These aren't just theories. These aren't just formulas. These are realities that the Holy Spirit wants to help us with to unpack in our life. My God, I want as much as I can get. I really do. We are not born or created to endure life. Sometimes I've endured life. Should never endure life. God doesn't want me to endure life. I'm talking, I'm talking about me because I don't want you to think that I'm telling you. I'm talking to me here. God wants us to enjoy life. Enjoy everything in Him for His revelation to break out every moment of every day and for those gentle words of the Holy Spirit's comfort just to, 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 to soften your soul and to waken you up and for you to go through the, the, the day with his strength and his help. He doesn't want us to endure life. And that's not to say, you know, there won't be times when we don't have a, a tough day, of course. But you know, generally, generally, he wants us to, to enjoy life. And I want to say this. And it's a, it's a quote which has blessed me very much by um, what's in him now? I forgot. Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom. Bless me very much. She said this. Our past has lessons to learn from, not life sentences to live out. Think about that. And sometimes we've made, and believe me, we've all made mistakes in our past. I'll put my two hands up and all my toes and my two feet, right? We've all, but you know what? Just lessons to learn from. You might say, yeah, but I, I've made some big mistakes. Just a lesson to learn from. Dismiss it. Come on, let's go on in God. Like Paul said, I've, this one thing, this one thing I've decided to do about my past, forgetting what's behind. I'm going on. Do you know what? Your, your past, like my past, has lessons to learn from, not life sentences to live out. 
as far as the east is from the west, he says, I will remember your sin no more. Thank God for that. Amen. So Paul, bringing this to a close, Paul, Romans 7, realizes that the law's against him. But in Romans 8, he discovers that God is for him. Romans 8, 31 to 34 says this, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, you see, brings it back to Jesus. Brings it back to Jesus all the time. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Who, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In Romans 7, Paul was bringing charges against himself. I'm a sinner, sold under sin. Everything, even the good I try to do ends in evil. And he comes into Romans 8 and he says, not a, not a charge will stand. I can't even charge myself. The salvation in Christ is so complete, so wonderful, so, com so, so secure. I can't even charge myself. I'm not a condemned criminal anymore. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things, they're gone, they're passed away. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? I love it. How he poses this question and sends it out everywhere and declares it for all time. Who is there that can raise their hand up against my life or your life and condemn me and bring a charge against me? God's work is so complete. Jesus' work is so finished that you and I stand before the throne of grace faultless, absolutely faultless. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? elect? If God, it is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us all. He starts his, uh, his, his confession in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. He starts off declaring there's no condemnation. And by the end of the chapter, he's saying there's no separation. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a transformation. What an experience, what a change in the conversation of a man's heart. And that is our portion as God's people. Amen, amen. Before we sing, guys, listen, we just really want to thank you and honor you through this season. It's not been an easy season and we've not been able to be together and we we tried our hardest through zoom and all of the these different mediums and they've been good to an extent but there's nothing like meeting together there really isn't seeing each other's face faces and like faith said you know where two or three are gathered together there jesus is in the midst and we've been in his presence this morning 
I'm going to pray. Noel's going to sing. And then Faye's just going to come and um, just close the service. Lord, I thank you for your precious people. These are your people, Lord. They don't belong to any man. They don't belong to a pastor. They don't belong to a church. They belong to the church. They're your body, Lord. You, you bought us with your blood. Nobody has done what you have done, Jesus. Nobody has hung on that cross. Nobody has been beaten and whipped and scourged and bore the penalty of our sin like you. Jesus, we just want to thank you today. And Lord, we just pray, would you help us as we walk through this journey of life? Lord, would you help us to live this full life, this life of the Spirit, this life that you died to give us, Jesus, not a substandard life, not a hindered life, but the very life of God, the Zoe life of God breaking out of us. Lord, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, that as your people, we would know this, it would be our portion. And Lord, we would just be that city on a hill, exuding that wonderful light and life that you have given us through your Son, Father. Amen. Amen. God bless you.